want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Today, we will be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. I recently, uh, maybe a few weeks ago, a couple months, uh, I finished a book called The Old Man and the Sea. It's written by Ernest Hemingway. Uh, and it's a fictional story about an old man who lives in a small fishing town in Cuba. And uh, the whole gist of the book is that this old man has a lot of bad luck because he hasn't caught a fish in, in so long. His livelihood depends on fishing, but he hasn't caught a fish in years. So one day, he goes out in his small wooden fishing boat, and he, he catches uh, a few small fish here and there, but more and more, uh, he goes further out to sea until eventually he catches this really, really big fish. He doesn't know what it is. He catches this, this big fish, and it, and it turns out that it's a marlin. Uh, and so he doesn't want to let it go, but he fights so hard and so long with it that he can't reel it in. So what he does is he just decides, I'm going to keep it on the line, and I'm going to let it drag me wherever it goes so that it'll wear itself out, and then I can reel it in. Uh, and so the old man, he's dragged farther and farther and farther out to sea. And so the whole time, though, we're listening uh, as readers to this old man's thoughts, and he's, and he's talking to himself and, and out loud and everything, and, and he's talking about the fish and, and what the fish means to him and what it would mean if he could just get it back to shore. Yeah, we, it's, a, it's a beautiful fish, a magnificent fish, the biggest marlin he'd ever seen. Well, eventually, he's able to reel the fish in, and he has to, you know, spear it and everything. He reels it in, but he can't get it to the boat, so what he has to do is he has to tie the marlin to the side of his little wooden fishing boat. And because he speared it, the marlin is bleeding. So, on his long journey back to the shore, shark after shark comes and tries to take a bite out of the fish. The old man's trying to fight the, the sharks off. Eventually, the old man makes it back to shore, but nothing remains of the fish except for its tail, its skeleton, and its head. The old man has nothing to show for it, nothing to show for his long journey, nothing, nobody can see how beautiful and marvelous this fish was. I think there's a lot to glean from that story, and, and I think Ernest Hemingway's really talking about the struggles of life and whether they're worth it. But one thing I think that the story shows is the connection between person and prize. Who a person is and what they prize. In the story, uh, we're invited more and more to see that the old man and the fish uh, are kind of the same because both are beaten with time and age and both don't really end up anywhere significant. Fish is dead and eaten, and the old man just goes back to his cabin and goes to sleep. Jesus, in this passage that we're going to look at today, invites us to consider the connection between person and prize. To consider the connection between who a person is and what it is that they prize. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has time and again reminded us that the kind of righteousness that God seeks is not only a perfect righteousness, but a wholesome righteousness. The kind of righteousness that is both internal and external. In fact, the external flows from the internal. And this righteousness doesn't just affect 
how we approach things like religious duty, like prayer and, and giving and all that kind of stuff, it affects our whole lives and how we also approach our material possessions. That's because at the end of the day, this greater wholesome righteousness that Jesus requires of his followers flows from the internal. What is in the heart and equally important what a person prizes. That's what this passage is about. That this internal righteousness comes from a heart that ultimately prizes rightly. So let's turn to Scripture and see what Jesus says about our hearts, what we prize, and how that determines what we seek. Let's read starting in chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When I was a kid playing sports, the trophy at the end of the season meant everything to me. I, I was never concerned with whether we had a winning season or a losing season, uh, I just wanted the trophy. And so I always remember going to the after-season pizza party, whether it was baseball or soccer or basketball, and just seeing that box full of those golden plastic trophies, you know. And I just wanted to be handed one. That's one of the reasons why I don't play professionally. The other uh, is by choice. But the thing is, uh, I wish I had valued being able to play more, being able to actually play because now I don't get to play. And I don't 
even know where those trophies are anymore. I had my eyes on the wrong treasure. And so the first thing that Jesus invites us to is to seek the true treasure. Seek the true treasure. These couple of verses, verses 19 to 21, what they do is they actually function as a bridge between the the previous passage and this passage that we're in today. Uh, And so it's fitting that after Jesus has talked extensively about reward, that he now turns to teach about treasure. So verse 2, what does he say? Uh, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Or again, uh, in verse uh, 5, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Or again, uh, in verse 16, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And now, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And so Jesus is preventing, presenting his followers with two ways of living. You're either going to live and lay up uh, treasures on earth or live and lay up treasures in heaven. And it's not neutral, right? Jesus isn't saying, okay, you're kind of in the middle of the road and then sometimes you'll be over here and sometimes over here. Either you're doing one actively or you're doing the other actively. And this ties directly into the previous section because what you treasure is what determines your reward. What you treasure determines your reward. So it's a different picture that that Jesus uses here, but he says the reward for earthly treasure is moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. That's your ultimate reward for laying up treasure in heaven. But but he uses a similar picture in in the previous chapter because... What do the hypocrites get for their reward? They get praise of man. And and just like moth and rust destroy and thieves and steal, this reward that they get is gone before it starts. I think of of social media posts that I see a lot lately that, that are intentionally provocative or alienating to other people and they get a bunch of likes. Get a bunch of likes if you post a really controversial, you know, just offensive post, but likes are all you get. J.C. Ryle had this to say about this passage. He said, worldliness is one of the greatest dangers that beset man's soul. It seems so harmless to seek our happiness in this world, so long as we keep clear of open sins. Their tastes, their ways, their habits tell a fearful tale. Open transgression of God's law slays its thousands, but worldliness slays its tens of thousands. So that's, that's this empty, moth-eating, rust-destroying, thief-stealing, earthly treasure. But on the other hand, it's treasure that satisfies. In contrast to the reward of the hypocrites, Jesus says in chapter 6, uh, verse 4, and your father, or verse 6, your father who sees in secret. Oh, sorry, in verse 4, yeah. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 18, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says of this reward uh, in verse 20, the treasure is where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus contrasts the the transient, destructive nature of 
worldly pleasure with the permanent, indestructible nature of heavenly pleasures. But that's just the problem that we have, isn't it? Because what we want is the earthly pleasure. That's, that's what we want. We, we want the heavenly for sure. We want to get to heaven, but we want earth too. Right? We want both. C.S. Lewis had this to say, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's why there's this contrast. That's why Jesus gives us these two options because where the moth and rust destroy and the thief break in and steal is where too often our hearts are. Exactly what Jesus means in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus isn't saying uh, what you value is what you love. Instead, what he's saying is what you love is who you are as a person. What you love is who you are in your innermost being. And, and that's the thing. We're creatures of love. We chase and we seek and we sacrifice and work for that which we love. Whether it's money or pleasure or comfort or security or power, family or possessions or whatever else, what your treasure is is what you're going to defend. What your treasure is is what you get most defensive about if someone puts their finger on it. It's what upsets you the most. It, what's, it's what you use to justify your actions. It's what you build walls around so that it's untouchable. So Jesus isn't simply saying, choose the right investment strategy. He's saying, check your treasure because where you place your treasure is fundamentally who you are. Check your treasure and seek the true treasure. Secondly, Jesus instructs us to seek the true master. The Sermon on the Mount is full of contrast. So the, the contrast right between heaven and earth. And then there's the contrast between righteousness and hypocrisy. There's the contrast between praise from men or praise from God. And here, the contrast is between light and darkness. Between one master and another. Jesus says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. This is an interesting metaphor. We know that Jesus here is talking about riches and, and material possession and treasure, but, but this isn't a metaphor that we'll, we're familiar with. 
And so the eye in Jesus' day was the window between the inner person and the outer person. So the evil eye, what Jesus calls the evil eye, is, was associated with greediness and, and enviness and stinginess. And the opposite of this is a healthy eye a, or a whole eye, which represents wholeness and, and generosity. It's, it's a similar saying that we have today, but we might say that someone's eyes are bigger than their stomach. right? So that usually means you put more on your plate than you can handle, but it also can be a metaphor for greediness. So Jesus, what he does here is he contrasts between a healthy eye that is whole and an eye that is greedy and fragmented. Again, this lines up with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount beautifully. You're either a whole person, a person who is of integrity, a person who is saying on the inside and out, or you are a fragmented person who is not the same person in their heart as they are in their actions. And what Jesus is getting at with this imagery of the eye being the window between the outside and the inside, what he's getting at is that there is not a thing in your peripheral when it comes to earthly pleasures and comforts that if it were used, abused, or insulted, you would have no problem giving it up. That's the thing about greed. Greed is overly protective. Greed is overly protected. It is the heart response that to treasuring or laying up treasure for yourselves that overvalues earthly goods. So Jesus says, lay up for yourselves not treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. And this greed is the heart response that overvalues that earthly treasure. And so you do, you end up doing whatever you can to protect it. And so instead of sacrificing for the good, the good asks you to sacrifice for it. That's exactly what Jesus means in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God money. Jesus lays this attitude squarely upon the heart. It's not about how much you give. It's not about how frequently you give. It's not about doing good things or religious duty. It's about who or what is your love. Who or what you are devoted to. In Sunday school, we're talking about commitment, right? We're talking about commitment, what commitment to God looks like in devotion. And a commitment and devotion to Christ comes out in a whole life orientation of seeking Him and submitting to Him. A whole life devotion to Christ doesn't happen once a week on Sundays. It doesn't happen because you might stand for Christian things. Thinking this way is like thinking uh, that you're you're devoted to your wife because you wear a wedding ring. You're devoted to your spouse because you wear a wedding ring. That's not devotion. Devotion happens every day, moment by moment, to a person. To a person. 
It's not those long, thought-out decisions. It's the small, everyday, impulse decisions that we don't give any thought to. To reinforce this point, it's interesting that Jesus' word here for money, some of your Bibles might actually have the little subscript down at the bottom. For money, he used the word mammon. This word usage that Jesus used, it, it brings to mind, it's supposed to bring to mind the ancient showdowns between Yahweh and all the false gods. So the, the showdown between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt, the showdown between Yahweh and Baal, the showdown between Yahweh and the gods of Babylon. And the showdown here that Jesus is bringing to the forefront is the showdown between God and mammon. And it takes place not out on a battlefield, but within your heart. Mammon is a jealous God. And rather than sacrificing earthly good on the altar, mammon asked you to sacrifice for earthly good. That's the showdown. Either mammon will have your affection or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both are vying for your affections. One will be the object of your love and your joy and your devotion and the other one will be despised. It's not enough to say I I tithe, I, I give, I serve. What matters is what's happening in the heart. Whether you do these things out of sincere love to God or for some other purpose. That's what idolatry is. Right? You might think you're serving God, but you really want to use God to achieve another purpose. So serve the true master. Finally, Seek the true righteousness. Seek the true righteousness. If, if greed is, is one heart attitude toward earthly treasure, worry is another. I'm not a worrier. Uh, and many of you have figured that, about, figured that out about me by now. I'm not a worrier. Peggy certainly has, and it frustrates her to death uh, that I'm not a worrier because she wishes I would plan more in ahead. Uh, and it drives Mallory crazy too because now one of her least favorite phrases in the world is, It's all going to be okay. She hates to hear that. So it would be easy for me as I read this passage to think this doesn't really apply to me because I don't really worry that much. But in reality, we all fall somewhere on the spectrum. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. And here's the thing about worry. is It's natural to worry. It's natural to worry. And this seems to be easier said than done. Don't worry. Okay, pastor. It's easy for you to say. You don't have cancer. You aren't struggling to pay your bills. You aren't worried about your marriage. Your kid didn't yell at you and slam the door in your face. Worry happens. Worry is a part of life. But I want to point out two different kinds of worry that Jesus is talking about here. 
It's the day-to-day worry of life and life-controlling worry. The day-to-day worries of life and life-controlling worry. So the day-to-day natural worry that we all carry is the natural concerns of life. Jesus addresses that here, food and clothes, all those kinds of things. And then there's the kind of worry that dominates your life. It it dictates your thoughts and your emotions. It it keeps you up at night. It has a control over you. And and the thing about these two emotions is that they overlap. Jesus is addressing both. Jesus talks about the day-to-day worries. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown to the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O little you of little faith. The thing about Jesus' day is that these were actually day-to-day worries, right? A worker, the typical worker in Jesus' day, worked for a day's wages. So our food for the day, we don't really have stored up. We have to work for it each and every day. And so that was a necessity of, of Jesus' day. But maybe some of you are living paycheck to paycheck, week to week. Go to bed not knowing how it will get better. But Jesus, Jesus reveals to us a, a kind of father who, when the flowers sprout, it's almost as if he's creating them with his fingers himself. Each and every flower all over the world. You could say that it's the same kind of God who puts the kind of care that not even a a snowflake that falls from the sky falls out of place. The day-to-day worries that Jesus addresses and and puts squarely into the hands of the Father. But there's also a life-controlling kind of worry. And it's a worry that can be day-to-day stuff. You can be controlled by what you will eat and what you will wear in these day-to-day worries, but it can be big worries too. When we were adopting Willow, the biggest worry for eight months was whether we weren't going to be able to keep her. It was a big worry. And if greed overvalues earthly possessions, this kind of worry undervalues the Father's goodness. It undervalues just how much care God puts into making the flowers and how much more care He will put into taking care of you. The solution, the solution to both of these is the same. Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Do you know what that sounds like? It sounds like verse 8. Your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, the thing is, Jesus has already given us the means to wrestle with worry. Prayer. 
worry and laying up treasure in heaven and trusting in God's fatherly goodness are all part and parcel of praying rightly. When we learn to pray rightly, we can order our hearts rightly when they're out of sync. When worry pulls our hearts out of sync with trusting in God's goodness, prayer is how we reorder them. Prayer is the medium through which we seek our Father's care in a world of greed and worry. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Whereas mammon costs you everything, the Father asks us to lay down our lives while taking the cost of it on His own shoulders. The Father wants to shoulder your burdens and your cares and anxieties. He wants to shoulder your next paycheck. He wants to shoulder your child's heart. He wants to shoulder your spouse for you. Psalm 62.8 says, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Well, how do we do that? Pour out your hearts to Him. For God is our refuge. We trust God by pouring out our hearts. Pouring them out. Psalm 68.19 Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. This infinite God who loves to stoop, if He so bears and cares about what a flower looks like in a field, how much more will He bear and care for your daily burdens? Our God is a burden-shouldering, anxiety-carrying, loving Father. It's funny as in chapter 6, Jesus talks about giving and prayer and fasting. In all of these, giving and praying and fasting are all ways to combat the heart attitudes of greed and worry. These are the arenas where we slay earth treasure seeking to seek heavenly treasure. They are the arena where we are to seek this true righteousness. So what's What's the remedy? What what do we do to lay up treasures in heaven and to avoid laying treasures on earth? First, like we've been talking about, prayer and submission. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We cast our cares, we cast our burdens, we cast our worries on the shoulders of our God and we submit to the approach of His kingdom. So prayer and submission, but repentance and faith. For people who are not Christians, for people who have not turned to Christ, you cannot pray your kingdom come if in your heart you desire the success of your own kingdom. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, you can't say with your heart your kingdom come because in your heart you want your kingdom to come. 
So the solution for you is repentance of your sins and faith in Christ. But repentance and faith is also true daily for Christians. Daily we need to repent for all the ways we lay up treasures on earth. And for fresh faith in Christ to lay up treasures in heaven. Quote C.S. Lewis again. He said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. Here's what it comes down to, this passage. Everything on earth wants your affection. Everything on earth wants your affections. But Christ is the only one who was worthy of it. Because Christ is the true treasure. Christ is the true and good master. Christ is our true righteousness. And the gospel the gospel is not a thing to do, but someone to know whose grace is sufficient for us. His grace is sufficient for today. So we lay down our cares and our anxieties on, and our burdens on the Christ who invites us to rest. Come all, all without exception, who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father God, at the bottom of it all, you are a God of rest. You're not a slave master. You are not mammon who asks us to give everything up and gives us nothing in return but ends up costing us everything. You're a God who lovingly calls us to lay down our lives, who has already taken the cost of everything on himself. You ask us to lay down our earthly treasures because where our earthly treasures cost us, Lord, you give us everything in return. So in, in reality, we, we say following Christ is costly. In reality, it's, it's not. Because in Christ we have everything we need. Christ is sufficient. You yourself, not what you give us, not how you provide for us, but you, O oh God, yourself are enough for each and every person in this room, each and every, you are so infinite that you are satisfying enough and good enough for each and every person on earth. And God, you invite us into that rest because you have already accomplished everything for us in Christ. Father, forgive us for where we so wrongly lay up treasure on earth. And, and Father, by your grace, help us to lay up treasure in heaven. By laying down our lives, our riches, our possessions, our tiny little kingdoms at your feet, 
submitting them to you and seeking your kingdom above all else. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.